This is Lit Mix, a podcast about the books that challenge us. I'm Andrea. And I'm Rachel. We're friends who met in eighth grade and grew up to be a high school English teacher and a K-12 school librarian. On each episode of our show, we focus on one book, exploring why it's controversial and what makes it important. Today, we're discussing Nick Stone's young adult debut, Dear Martin. Everything can be taken from a person, but one thing. The last of the human freedoms. To choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. To choose one's own way. This quote comes from Viktor Frankl, who was a Jewish-Austrian psychiatrist and concentration camp survivor. An idea that the author wants the reader to wrestle with is how do you find the motivation to continue to do what's right even when everyone around you looks at you and assumes that what you're doing is wrong and even when doing what's right is the thing that gets you into trouble in the first place. Yeah, and I think choices in the moment and life choices are both themes that come up a lot in this book. So Dear Martin is Nick Stone's debut novel is published in 2017. And it was inspired by real events, including the 2012 murder of 17 year old Jordan Davis, who was a black teen who was shot by a white man at a Florida gas station after an argument about loud music. Stone is also the author of other books, Odd One Out, Jackpot, and Dear Justice, which is a companion to Dear Martin, and we could talk about later. Dear Martin was a finalist for the ALA's 2018 William C. Morris Award, which is an award for a debut young adult novel. It was also an ALA 2018 top 10 quick pick for reluctant young adult readers and got a starred review from Booklist. However, like so many of the great recent books that we're talking about, this book has been challenged. In recent years, it was removed from the curriculum in Columbia County, Georgia, and I think it was removed because it talked about police violence and put police in a not 100% positive light. So I, I actually saw an interview with Nick Stone where she essentially said, you know, that's great that you can try to shield your children Rachel and I, we didn't need to have that talk with our sons about how to deal with police. And that's our white privilege. But there are so many kids who have that talk with their parents who need to know that, you know, there are certain ways to act in order to save your life. And even following all those rules can still get you killed, which is a big part 
of the book mm -hmm. doing the right thing with black skin might still get you in the line of extra scrutiny and even violence. Yeah, so that's how the book opens. It's called Dear Martin because the main character, Justice, starts writing a kind of like a journal of letters to Martin Luther King after what he calls the incident, which is the opening scene of the book. He is trying to stop his ex-girlfriend from driving home drunk. And a cop comes onto the scene, sees these two teenagers struggling and immediately assumes the worst of justice. And he is assaulted by the police officer. He's handcuffed. Was he arrested? Yeah. He was brought to so, the station and arrested and then released. Justice is trying to do the right thing. He he can't leave this girl drunk in a parking lot with her car and her car keys. He even considers taking the keys and just leaving her there and letting her parents come get her. But he also thinks what, what could happen to her here late at night all by herself i can't even just leave her without the car keys the incident that opens the book mirrors uh an incident that takes place off stage later in the book but is one of those stories that's circulating in the news cycle in injustice's story and it's a story of a young black man attempting to help an older woman who had gotten lost or something like that. And then he was also assaulted by police who assumed in that moment that he, he was doing something nefarious when in fact he was trying to help. So that's that question again, you know, how do you continue to do what's right when because of the way you look, it's going to be assumed that what you're doing is wrong. When people are going to make that assumption of you, why should you commit to nonviolence? It, it might be in Justice's first letter to Martin Luther King, where he kind of talks about why he's writing to him and him in particular. It says, I've been trying to figure out what you would have done if you'd been in my shoes today. I know you lived in a world where black folks were hosed and beaten and jailed and killed while fighting for equal rights, but you still managed to be like, dignified and everything. How did you do that, Martin? How do I do that? So that is what Justice is struggling with throughout the book. And he wants to do the right thing. And he wants to be dignified and be a good person. But how do you do it? What does it mean? Those are questions that every young adult has to face. The things that each person are facing is going to be different. But I think there's so much that any reader can get from Justice's exploration of this question. How do I remain dignified when I am treated unfairly? When people assume the worst of me? Do I return violence and suspicion and hatred for violence and suspicion and hatred? Because Justice wants to at a certain point, right? Without spoiling anything in the book, there are moments in this narrative when he feels like returning violence for violence is absolutely the right thing to do. But the author doesn't leave us there. Mm -hmm. 
No. So what did you love about this book? Because I think we both really loved it. I love the portrayal of the teacher whom they affectionately call Doc. A black man has a PhD. They're debate coach and teacher. And I just love the way that he runs a classroom and allows kids to talk about topics that are difficult to talk, talk about well. Topics that are controversial and hard. And I think he provides a model of civility and a model of maturity and a model of courage um, for the many wonderful teachers who continue to hold difficult conversations about really important things, even when they know they will probably catch heat from it for from someone, whether that's parents or school boards or politicians. I think we've been seeing a lot of that in our world. And it's lovely to see a book that really foregrounds like this need for conversations. Another thing I loved about the book is that it is framed as a conversation that Justice is having with himself and a conversation that he's having with Martin. There's a point at which Justice says, you know, maybe the right question isn't what would Martin do, but what am I going to stand true to despite whatever is coming at me? I loved SJ and Justice's relationship so, so much, which I know that's what you're going to say, but I just thought it was one of the cutest, geekiest, sweetest high school romances ever. Yes. No, I, I love them. You know, they were debate partners first. And so in a way, their relationship was based on conversations. And they just they talked to each other about things that really mattered. Justice had another love interest, Mello, who is the the girl from the, the opening scene. And their relationship in contrast, seemed mostly physical. I remember what Mello looks like, but not really anything she said. I was just going to say, I feel like Mello was described as looking like a Bratz doll. <laughs> yeah, and I think there is a part later in the book where she does actually talk to Justice in one scene. I don't remember what the conversation is, but she's not totally one-dimensional, but... She definitely, she doesn't, she doesn't have much of a presence. We'll put it that way. And SJ and Justice, they could talk for hours on the phone and not realize that time had passed. And SJ is white. She's Jewish. And at one point early in their relationship, she apologizes to Justice for kind of like, speaking for him in one of the classroom debates and that was something that he really appreciated so i don't know it's just a really cute give and take between them and a i could see this relationship lasting through college possibly beyond who knows high school sweetheart but also I thought it's just a really good example to teenagers of what a great, healthy relationship can look like where you're equal partners and friends. Equal partners and friends. And I love what Justice says to his mom. He's like, SJ makes me better. She makes me want to be better. She encourages mm. and champions the best parts of myself that I like. 
Yeah, and and his mom isn't very excited about this relationship, I guess, because she she envisions him dating and eventually marrying a black woman. So SJ doesn't fit her vision for her son of who he's going to be with. But so at first he kind of hides it from his mom, but then at a certain point he he just kind of tells her like you said this is this is who I'm with right now and we work well together. <laughs> so something else to note is uh and I don't remember I don't remember who said this, but at least one person in the book said that SJ's not white white, she's Jewish. So, do you want to say anything about that? As the Jewish woman. The Jewish woman in the room on the call and this is actually something that justice brought up with his mom he said to his mom sarah jane's jewish her people have suffered too and she said yeah but you don't see jewish on the skin which i think is exactly his mom's exactly right you don't see jewish on the skin people sometimes pretend that you can tell if someone's jewish but just by looking but you can't however justice also says when justice says her people have suffered too. And then there are a couple of references in the book's book to forced migration and concentration camps and the fact that African-American people and Jewish people around the world share the distinction of being diasporic peoples, people who live in diaspora from an ancestral home. That shared history of trauma can and has throughout history meant that Jews and Blacks have been able to make common cause in the civil rights movement. And there is some reference to that. Sarah Jane mentions to Justice that there was Jewish involvement in the civil rights movement in the United States. However, I feel it's important to point out that Jews have participated in white privilege, a kind of shared history. The day-to-day exper- -day experience of moving through the world is going to be um, different. But certainly attacks on synagogues and desecration of Jewish cemeteries and certain anti-Semitic attacks on the rise at the same time as police violence against black people continues unabated. It's probably time for thinking about joint civil rights movement again. And I also really liked there was one scene where the teacher, Doc, visits Justice in his dorm room because... Justice is a boarding student at this school, and I don't remember what the topic of conversation was, but Justice uses some kind of profanity in his, uh, in his conversation with the teacher, and he immediately apologizes, but the teacher says, no, this is your space. Like, I'm on your turf. That's that's quite all right. Speak how you will. Speak how you feel. And I thought that was pretty cool. They were no longer in the classroom. They were in Justice's territory, his dorm room. <laughs> yes. That's another important thing that the book, I think, touches on. This idea that young people have a right to their own spaces. Young people have a right to their own ideas young people have a right to their own voices i just love that the teacher isn't gonna censor 
the student and his authority is somewhat limited to the classroom and is in like a guiding role, but it's not an absolute authority. And this question of who has authority over kids is something that kind of comes up again and again. At a certain point, his mother, want, Justice's mother, wants to intervene and says like, no, don't answer their questions. Don't do not do this. And Justice is like, mom, thank you, but I need to take over. I'm going to be 18 in three weeks. And this is now my time to speak for myself. And at the same time, Nick Stone reminds us a few times that under Georgia law, justice as a 17-year-old could be treated in the criminal justice system as an adult. So there's this there's a blurring of a line here where a system treats kids as kids when we're concerned about, you know, what substances they can buy or what movies and books they should have access to, but treating them as adults when they're when they're coming before the law. Mm-hmm. Aside from Justice and Sarah Jane, there are some interesting side characters. Justice's friends and classmates. Do you want to start by talking about Manny? So Manny is Justice's best friend. Manny's father is an investment banker and Manny's mother is a psychologist. And Manny has lived the life of a wealthier black man in suburban Atlanta in Georgia. And Manny and Justice have a great relationship. In one of their very vulnerable conversations, Manny confesses to Justice that he's kind of afraid of black girls. That, he goes on to explain, is because of the expensive private school that he's gone to, because of the very wealthy lifestyle that he's had, he hasn't been around many black girls outside of girls in his own family and feels like he doesn't know how to talk to them. I think the thing you could say about Manny that would sum it up is that he is worried that he's not really black enough. He's hung out with a lot of white guys his whole life, and that's not always so easy for him. So another character that I feel like we should talk about is Jared, who is uh, one of... He's one of Justice's classmates and Manny's friend, but not necessarily Justice's friend. Not at all. And at least, you, and not after a certain point. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to talk about Jared's role in the classroom discussions? Perhaps we really see what Jared is made of when he comes into class the day after getting deferred from Yale and he is upset. And the reason he's upset is that he's pretty sure that the reason he got deferred from Yale instead of accepted early decision is because he's white. And then he proceeds to make a series of assumptions about justice and his acceptance early decision to Yale. And he makes some assumptions about his test scores and his grades. And this brings out a full-throated defense from SJ, and it's quite a classroom event. The upshot of it is that Jared is pretty sure that he's better than some black guy who's going to get into Yale ahead of him. The scene is really useful, I think, for illustrating a conversation that I personally have seen take place many times on a prep school campus. And, um, raises the the sort of essential question of how do you 
find equality in the admissions process when some people have had such better and more thorough preparation by the age of 17 or 18. The case that SJ makes is, you know, if you didn't have all these test prep courses, if you didn't have all high school teachers with PhDs Mm -hmm. instead of first year teachers who quit after a year in tough city schools, if you didn't have parents who are constantly reading to you, then how is your SAT score stacked up against somebody else's SAT score? How is it even a fair comparison? Because the starting conditions are so different. And I think we do see Jared sort of take some of that in. Yeah. And Jared was the one in one of the first classroom conversations who insisted that everything is now equal in the United States. Um, He pointed at Manny and Manny's family and look how well off they are because of his parents' hard work. And if, if they can be a black family that has all of this wealth, you know, why can't others? (laughs) So, I mean, but that's just like when we first meet Jared, he's like, oh, there's no racism anymore. I think that Jared, because of his friendship with Manny, is a really good example of how white people can both be friends with and care about the black people in their life, but still participate in and perpetuate racism. So we saw all of the racist arguments that he made. He was a part of that whole Halloween costume debacle in the book where uh, so Manny and Jared and their friends and they they rope justice in too to dress up as racial stereotypes for Halloween. And um, Justice was the thug. Manny was the token black. Jared was some kind of yuppie. And then this other kid, Blake, wore Blake wore an authentic KKK hood and robe that that just happened to be lying around his house. I don't know. They didn't. They didn't get away with this horrible idea they saw consequences to choosing to dress up this way even those consequences fell differently for the white kids than the black kids because later in the book a picture of justice who is usually wearing i think his brazelton prep hoodie there a picture of justice circulates in the news where he where he's dressed in his hood halloween costume and it's used as part of a media smear against him to say that he deserves whatever is coming yeah yeah so anyway jared participates in all of that but i also think he genuinely genuinely cares about manny as a friend and he does show some growth towards the end of the book um he's he's taking an african-american studies class in college and considering going into civil rights law but it's just a shame that it took 
like such an extreme circumstance for him to open his eyes a little bit and come around to a different way of thinking. I think it is one of the most hopeful ideas, I think, is the idea that people can change in fundamental ways. And I think the fundamental change in Jared is just that he becomes a little bit humble about what it is he doesn't know about what Black people in America face. The idea that America has moved beyond racism is extremely attractive. (laughs) It would be lovely if it were true. And I think that the desire for that is lovely and to pretend that it's a reality is violent and dangerous and I think the bit of hope that comes or a bit of hope for me in this book is just that Jared would become curious and I think that's you know that's Nick Stone's invitation to the reader as well absolutely so at the end of the book Justice goes to college and he meets his roommate and just from that disappointing interaction he thinks to himself it never ends does it referring to people looking at him differently or making judgments about him because he's black and he kind of wonders to himself what was the whole point of his martin luther king project he thinks if nothing ever changes what type of man am i gonna be you know he says martin luther king lived this life of nonviolence, and he got shot anyway but I think it was the teacher who said, or the teacher who pointed out that Martin Luther King would have lived his life the same way anyway. So my takeaway is kind of what we were talking about earlier and goes back to the quote that you shared earlier. You can't control other people, but you can control how you move through the world and what you make of things. So at one point towards the end of the book, Justice kind of did have a choice. Basically, he could go to Yale or he could join a gang. And I didn't think he was actually going to join this gang, but there is a scene where he goes and visits the local gang leader. And that kind of showed how there was a potential for him to take his life down a different path. Yeah, but he chose to move forward with his education. I think that scene is really poignant. When he goes to the house of the gang leader and sees there's all this Egyptian imagery around. And this man is talking about, you know, his royal heritage of being of African descent. And he's listening so empathetically to all the stuff that Justice has been through. And Justice says how he feels very understood in a way that he hasn't felt understood in a long time. Like that all these terrible things that have happened to him this guy really understands. And I think that's part of the attraction, not so much in order to do violence, but to be in a circle of people who understand you and contrast that with going to Princeton and yes, having this white roommate who's kind of looking down his nose at you. One choice involves a lot of struggle. I know Michelle Obama 
when she said when she went to Princeton, she felt like she was a black dot in a bowl of rice. The image that's going to stay me an image that's pretty early in the book when it's when Justice goes home to his mom and he's feeling like he doesn't want to return to school. But when he goes in and he sees his mom reading a book, he remembers how his mom taught him to read and how she's always championed his education. And that when he walks in and sees her reading that book, he knows he's going to go on his way back to school. But what I love about that moment is that his mother listens to him. She listens, she listens, she listens. And then she asks him, what are you going to do? Again, that's that question that we keep coming back to is what are you going to do with the circumstances that you find yourself in? Because it could always be tempting to run away and to opt out of the difficulty that you're facing. That, that kind of brings me to the song that I picked for this episode. I don't know if we're ready to talk about it. I know we also want to talk about, like, would you add this to the syllabus? It is such an accessible read and a good entry point to begin to think about and talk about issues of race. So librarians like to talk a lot about Dr. Rudine Sims Bishop. Maybe you're familiar with her concept of books being windows, mirrors, and sliding glass doors. So, so Dr. Rudine Sims Bishop is, is the originator of the concept of books as windows, mirrors, and sliding glass doors. And Dear Martin is a perfect example of how this book could be a window for some kids uh, into other lives. And it could also be a mirror for other kids who see themselves in this story. So that's why I think it is absolutely valuable to use in any classroom. It's definitely a book that I can imagine even building an entire unit around, not least because of the way that it models having discussions about difficult issues. And also because of the way that it models both healthy and unhealthy relationships. I think there's really a, a lot here that students can discuss. And because it's fiction, but very closely related to events that are frequently discussed in the, in the news, it could be a really useful text in helping students understand many of the conversations that are happening about policing and about race in the country yeah this is these are current events and it's the world that our students and our own kids are living in right now do we know more about what are the challenges to this book is it just that it portrays i, I don't know if i found anything else i think it's just like portrays police in a bad light <laughs> i don't know um, uh, let's look up Dear Martin Nick Stone Challenge. Uh, band. Okay, let's see. Marshall Libraries. Let's see. Um, 
Challenged at Rockwood School District, St. Louis County, Missouri, parents complained about the use of Dear Martin by Nick Stone in the Culture and Identity Unit of ninth grade English classes. The school district's lesson plans contextualize the book's themes of racism and police violence through discussions on racial profiling, civil disobedience, and affirmative action. Oh, okay, so someone who objected to the book said she was, quote, heartsick when listening to the audiobook and hearing what she described as anti-police sentiment. Yeah, so that's one, that's one challenge. <laughs> anti-police sentiment. Yeah, I guess there's not much more to say about that. Let's see. Dear Martin pulled from Tuscola class. This is on a site called Smoky Mountain News. Students at Tuscola High School will no longer be able to read Dear Martin after administration decided the book is too inappropriate to use as assigned reading. The, in, the intended educational message or purpose of the book was being diminished by the way it was written by the amount of profanity and innuendo. So there are curse words in this book. Uh-oh. I don't know. <laughs> There's also the acknowledgement that justice finds girls attractive. Yes, he does. <laughs> Oh, no, and no other teenager uh, feels that way. It seems obvious that challenges to this book are based in political grievances. Something that's so strange that came up in my teaching career is explicitly teaching about race and racism, a political act. I mean, I would read books in the library with kids like super young second graders we would be reading picture books uh themed for martin luther king day and talk about racism with seven-year-olds like if they're you know if they're young enough to experience it why can't they talk about it in school so i picked changes by Tupac Shakur. Oh, I love that song. Me too. It's just like one of my favorite songs in general. I actually just found out that it was released after he died, but recorded years earlier, obviously. <laughs> I mean, Tupac lives. But anyway, so it was recorded in 1992 and released in 98, two years after his death. Um, this song addresses racism, police brutality, gang violence. It has a reference to Huey Newton, who was the leader of the Black Panthers. Um, but one line that kind of brought me into Dear Martin was just a quick lyric. I'd love to go back to when we played as kids. And it made me think of justice and Quan, who 
is Manny's cousin, but Quan was also Justice's friend as a kid. I think it's funny that Justice always refers to his mom's neighborhood and not my old neighborhood or my neighborhood. It's always my mom's neighborhood or his mom's neighborhood, you know, because he he lives in the dorm at school now. But when they're introducing Quan, who is early in the book arrested for killing a police officer, who happens to be the police officer that Justice had his incident with. Quan and Justice played together back when the only thing that mattered was staying outside until the streetlights came on. And it says, like, Justice Quan tested into the Accelerated Learners Program in third grade. But when elementary school ended, Quan started running with a not-so-great crowd. So, you know, Justice went to this private school. Quan stayed in the neighborhood and joined a gang. And I feel like the song, Changes, is kind of like about feeling as if you have no choice in your situation and specifically as a black man in America, as Tupac was writing about his experience. So I just kind of saw that connection between the song and the characters in the book. So what song did you pick? My song was also released in 1998. Amazing. Forgive Them Father. And it is from the Divine album called The Miseducation of Lauren Hill by Ms. Lauren Hill. Wait, sidebar. But when you look up Lauren Hill on Spotify, it says Ms. Lauren Hill for the official name of the artist. That is her official artist name now. By It's Ms. Lauren Hill. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. So my song is Forgive Them Father by Ms. Lauren Hill from her album, The Education, The Miseducation of Lauren Hill, correction. So I wanted to pick something from this album just because this is a book that takes place in school and it's an album that takes place conceptually in school. So I like that. And I also um, resonate with the message of the song, which is really kind of a prayer, honestly, that um, Ms. Lauren Hill is singing about people who have harmed her, but not necessarily her personally only, but like collectively have harmed Black people, asking for forgiveness for those who, who truly don't know what they do. And I just think that this is such a lovely, gracious song, almost nobly the artist is like expressing this desire. I just think it's a really amazing song about forgiveness. And I can't quite believe that forgiveness like this exists, but it seems to me that this is kind of what Gandhi, what MLK Jr., what Justice McAllister are striving for. I think the song kind of gets at some of that. It, it seems like superhuman to be able to forgive such atrocities and maybe it is maybe it is superhuman anyway that song reminds me of this and i I like how you included 
justice in that list of great minds because the the follow-up to Dear Martin is Dear Justice. And it's actually Quan's letters to Justice. So we get to see the perspective of Quan in the companion book. Quan gets to speak for himself as well, which that's great. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Lit Mix. Check the link in our show notes for other perspectives and resources on the books and topics discussed in this show. Lit Mix is created, hosted, and produced by Andrea Benvenuto and me, Rachel Stone. Follow us on Instagram at Litmix Podcast or email us at litmixpodcast at gmail.com. Like what you hear? Subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Or drop a few coins in our tip jar on Ko-Fi. Thanks for your support.